I'm going to talk about some objections that have been raised against the philosophical position that Marcus Aurelius outlines, um, objections that don't necessarily apply just to him, but to Stoicism, or perhaps in particular the late Stoics more um, widely. And um, there's a handout with various texts that I'll um, that I'll read through the way and um, along the way, and that we can we can um, we can talk about if any of them stand out as being particularly interesting. So let me begin. Um, as we all know, the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius are a somewhat unusual text and certainly not a typical work of philosophy. In a review of a recent biography of Marcus Aurelius, Mary Beard wrote, No one except an academic philosopher could possibly read the Meditations from start to finish. But alas, academic philosophers are probably the least likely people to do so. And there are no doubt a number of reasons for this. The cynic might say that it's simply because Marcus isn't a philosopher of any great note, and the meditations aren't an interesting philosophical text. And even an admirer of Marcus would have to admit that there are limits to how much we can claim for him as a philosopher. The other reason is that the meditations don't neatly conform to the predominant modern preconceptions of what a work of philosophy ought to look like. And connected with this, they do not appear to contain many arguments for the positions that they present. Although I think the meditations perhaps contain more arguments than one might suppose, and I'll look at one a bit later. But there is, I think, another, perhaps more substantial philosophical reason why all of the late Stoic authors have been neglected by philosophers. That's the thought that the broad philosophical outlook described by the late Stoics is simply unattractive. In particular, a number of modern philosophers have objected that the ethical position that we find in Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism more widely is merely the product of psychological rationalisation, which is to say that the Stoic claim that we ought not to place value on external objects and states of affairs and instead see our own inner virtue or mental excellence as the only thing we need for a good happy life is not a serious considered philosophical position at all, but rather merely and defensive response to unpleasant experiences. Now, before turning to these sorts of objections directly, let me first say a bit more about the meditations. Philosophically, the meditations appear at first glance to be pulling in two different directions. On the one hand, Marcus continually reminds himself and us that each one of us is part of cosmic nature, and that this cosmic nature is rational and providentially ordered. It is, depending on the metaphor, a giant organism of which we are parts, or a well-regulated community of which we are citizens. But either way, the key point is that by downplaying our individuality and embracing our role as just one small component within this larger entity, we shall overcome the tensions, frictions and disturbances that arise when we conceive of ourselves as distinct from and opposed to this larger cosmic nature. If we conceive of ourselves as parts of nature and do our best to live in accordance with nature, then our lives will flow well. So um, let me give you a quick quotation, which is on the handout. Um, Marcus writes... 
The soul of man harms itself first when it becomes, as far as it can, a separate growth, a sort of tumour on the universe. Because to resent anything that happens is to separate oneself in revolt from nature, which holds in collective embrace the particular natures of all things. So this aspect of the meditations draws on and represents one of the central themes in early Stoicism, of course, namely the goal of living in harmony with nature. This being a goal that Marcus himself explicitly adopts. However, this seems to be only half of the story. For on the other hand, Marcus also gives what appears to be quite different advice. As well as advising that we ought to break down the barriers between ourselves and cosmic nature, Marcus also suggests that we retreat into ourselves, turning our inner self into an inner citadel, an acropolis, from which we might be able to fend off the unpleasant attacks of a hostile and often seemingly cruel outside world. So again, another quotation from Marcus, also on the handout. He writes, Remember that your directing mind becomes invincible when it withdraws into its own self-sufficiency, not doing anything it does not wish to do, even if its position is unreasonable. How much more, then, when the judgment it forms is reasoned and deliberate? That is why a mind free from passions is a fortress. People have no stronger place of retreat, and someone taking refuge here is then impregnable. Anyone who has not seen this is short of wisdom. Anyone who has seen it and does not take refuge is short of fortune. So part of what is involved in this retreat inwards is a reassessment of our desires, so that we no longer pursue those external goods and states of affairs that are in fact out of our control. It's only within our own little inner citadel that we have complete control and autonomy. And so if we limit our desires to things within that inner citadel, then nothing will ever be able to disturb us. So again, another passage from Marcus. He writes, If you set up as good or evil any of the things beyond your control, it necessarily follows that in the occurrence of that evil or the frustration of that good, you blame the gods and hate the men who are the real or suspected causes of that occurrence or that frustration. And indeed, we do much injustice through our concern for such things. But if we determine that only what lies in our own power is good or evil, there is no reason left us either to charge a god or to take a hostile stance to a man. Now what this amounts to is the claim that the only thing with which we ought to be concerned is the excellent virtuous condition of the ruling part of our soul. And everything outside this, including our bodies and all our external goods and states of affairs, ought to be a matter of indifference to us. And this, too, draws on and develops a central theme in earlier Stoicism, namely its theory of value, to which Marcus is clearly committed, and which we'll come back to and I'll say a bit more about later on. So these two themes taken together appear to pull Marcus in opposing directions, on the one hand, expanding the self to the point that one identifies oneself, one's desires and well-being with those of nature as a whole, while on the other, contracting the self to the point that not even one's body or even one's sensory impressions will count as properly our own. 
And both ideas seem to be expressed together in 658, where Marcus writes, No one will prevent you living in accordance with the principle of your own nature. Nothing will happen to you contrary to the principle of universal nature. Now, there are a number of ways in which we might try to explain the presence of these seemingly opposed themes. One type of explanation would refer to the wider cultural context in which the meditations were written, and this is what E.R. Dodds does when he locates Marcus on the boundary between a dying optimistic culture and a new age of anxiety, marked by a turn inwards that finds its fullest expression a little later on in Plotinus and then Augustine. Dodds suggests that Marcus expresses both, and I quote, the old feeling of the divinely ordered unity of things, when more characteristic of his time is a repeated stress on the need for withdrawal into the inner life. Okay, so I'll come back to how those two themes might be reconciled um, a bit later on. But a number of philosophers that have read Marcus or come into contact with ideas in late Stoicism have tended to focus on just the second of these two themes, on the turn inwards. And they've tended to present this as the defining characteristic of Marcus's late Stoicism. They've then gone on to attack this as an instance of what they call psychological rationalisation. Bernard Williams, for instance, gives us a version of this objection against Stoicism in his Shame and Necessity, where he writes, and this is on the handout, um, Later antiquity seems rather to have given up the question of slavery as a problem in political philosophy in favour of edifying attempts to show that slavery was not really harmful to the slave. In particular, that real freedom was freedom of the spirit, and that this could be attained as well, perhaps even better, by slaves. One of the most explicit, certainly one of the more repulsive expositions of this attitude, is offered by Seneca. Now, what's repulsive to Williams and others is the claim that a slave in real physical bondage might nevertheless pretend to possess a sort of inner freedom and autonomy more valuable than the outer freedom of which they are deprived. This, the critic suggests, is a pernicious and self-illusion. What the slave needs is not some inner sense of autonomy, but rather liberation from his external bondage. Now, Williams was a great admirer of Isaiah Berlin, and it's in the work of Berlin that we find one of the clearest expressions of this concern with what we might call the late Stoic project of turning oneself into an inner citadel. There are scattered remarks about the Stoics throughout Berlin's many works, but the most significant discussion can be found in what is probably his most famous essay, Two Concepts of Liberty. The essay, as the title suggests, outlines two different conceptions of liberty or freedom, and Berlin uses these words interchangeably. In particular, he out it outlines the concepts of negative freedom and positive freedom, and these form the backdrop to his comments about Stoicism and Marcus Aurelius. Now, negative freedom for Berlin is simply freedom from by others. So, to the extent that external entities, including other agents, limit my ability to do as I choose, I am unfree. Berlin has no problem with this conception of freedom, but like others before him, he acknowledges that there must be some limits to this sort of freedom for the sake of preserving the freedom of others and for the smooth running of civil society. Berlin contrasts this negative conception of freedom with what he calls positive freedom. 
So if negative freedom is freedom from interference, then positive freedom is the freedom to attain certain ends that are deemed valuable, such as happiness or autonomy. Thus, one might want to be free to live a happy life, to be rational, to be autonomous, and if one fails to reach these ends, then presumably one is not free enough in this positive sense, even though one might be completely free from interference by others. And what Berlin is most concerned about with this positive conception of freedom is that sometimes others, and assessments, might try to set the ends of positive freedom and then forcibly intervene the lives of people in order to empower them to achieve those ends, and if this is done with the best of intentions. Freedom on this account is not freedom from interference, but rather the realisation of an ideal condition, often embodying some form of rationality or actualization of a potential. It often involves distinguishing this ideal self from our everyday self. Our best interests serve our higher essential self, but our lower everyday self may not be aware of these best interests. Now, Berlin's main target in all of this was, of course, Soviet communism, which in his view sacrificed people's negative freedom from interference in the name of positive freedom. However, in his search for the origins of this positive notion of freedom, Berlin turns to the Stoics. For the Stoics, he suggests, were among the first to make a distinction between a higher essential self and a lower everyday self. The Stoics do so in the name of freedom or autonomy, Berlin suggests, but what they end up with is an empty and unattractive version of positive freedom that fails to acknowledge the sorts of limitations on our ability to act that are addressed by negative conceptions of freedom. So the Stoics then sell us a false form of freedom that also, albeit inadvertently, lays the foundations for later positive conceptions of freedom that, according to Berlin, are genuinely dangerous. So on Berlin's account, the Stoic, like everyone else, encounters various obstacles in life that limit his freedom. But rather than either accepting these limits for the real limits they are, or trying to overcome them directly, the Stoic decides to redefine his sense of self by rejecting desires that cannot be fulfilled and disavowing external objects that he cannot fully control. Thus, the Stoic slave rather than acknowledging his state of bondage in which he is in, instead denies that his enslaved body is really part of his essential self at all. Only his mind or his will, his proirisis, that over which no one can gain control, is his true essential self. And by restricting his notion of self in this way, the Stoic slave can now claim to be completely free, even while very much still in chains. And this is what Berlin calls, and I quote, a strategic retreat into an inner citadel. A famous example of this sort of retreat in action is recorded by Origen. Before Epictetus achieved his freedom, his master was one day twisting his leg. Epictetus is said to have responded gently and calmly, you're breaking it. And when his master had broken it, added equally calmly, didn't I tell you that you were breaking it? And as Berlin puts it, perhaps with this anecdote in mind, um, I, this is a quote from, from Berlin, if I train myself to want nothing to which the possession of my leg is indispensable, I shall not feel the lack of it. 
Now, for Berlin, this sort of strategic retreat is a false form of freedom, ignoring the reality of the situation, prioritizing a fictional notion of a disembodied essential self over one's tangible physical self, and rewriting one's ambitions and desires to make them conform to whatever circumstances one might happen to find oneself in. And this sort of response to unpleasant events is sometimes labelled rationalisation. So in order to survive an intolerable situation, the Stoic rationalises his way out of it by re-describing both the situation and himself. Now this may well be a prudent psychological survival tactic, but, so the criticism goes, it's not much else. Once the Stoic slave has been freed, what he ought to do is to be genuinely thankful and admit to the awfulness of his previous situation while he basks in his newfound negative freedom. But instead, what he does is maintain the rationalisation even when he is now free. Now, this the same sort of objection has been raised against the Stoics more recently by David Zimmerman in a discussion of Harry Frankfurt's theory of free will. Zimmerman thinks he can detect worrying Stoic tendencies in Frankfurt's theory, um, and he thinks that these tendencies are enough to discredit Frankfurt's position altogether. That's how a view of Stoicism Zimmerman has. Um, and we'll see why in a moment. What Zimmerman wants to avoid is a conception of autonomy that can be achieved by resigning and adapting oneself to necessity. And he explores this by considering a number of hypothetical examples, of which I shall briefly discuss just one. So here's a quick thought experiment from Zimmerman, and then we'll, we'll get on to Marcus proper. So imagine making a fortune from a variety of corrupt enterprises, helped by contacts from people close to the Kremlin. Zimmerman calls him Epictetov. <laughs> Epictetov is disgustingly rich and enjoys spending his money in vulgar and self-indulgent ways. It's the life he always dreamed of as a small boy, and he absolutely loves it. One day, while on a business trip to a province, he's kidnapped by separatists who hold him hostage in order to gain leverage with Moscow. Epictetov is put in a small cell on his own, and although relieved to be alive, he begins to despair at his plight, all too conscious that he might never see his fancy house, his favourite sports car, or his trophy wife ever again. After a while, Epictetov sees that spiralling further into despair is not going to help him get through this ordeal. Instead, he needs to find himself a coping strategy if he's going to remain sane until his hopeful release. He realises that he needs to find ways not to mind so much his current situation. Searching within himself for resources, he starts to remember old Sunday school lessons from his childhood that taught him the redemptive power of resignation. <coughs> At the time, Epictetus thought, and he still does now, but reflecting on it might find a way to get through his confinement. So, each day, Epictetov reflects on Christian ideas of resignation to a higher power and the virtues of poverty and humility. And as time passes, he finds himself thinking less and less about his old life. Indeed, by the time that the conflict between Moscow and the separatists is resolved and all of the host hostages are released, Epictetov has transformed himself to such an extent that he chooses not to return to his old life in Moscow at all, instead choosing to become a priest in the Orthodox Church in a town close to where he was being held. Now, there's of course nothing wrong with someone choosing to become a priest. And there's equally nothing wrong with someone rejecting a form of life they once enjoyed and turning to another. 
But Zimmerman's objection to what is going on in this example is that although Epictetus, and I quote, knowingly and intentionally brings about his own transformation, he does so only because this strikes him as the only reasonable alternative to suffering the sheer misery imposed by his constraining circumstances. Zimmerman concludes by commenting that constrained character planning may indeed be the rational course to take under such circumstances, but to view it as a path to or an exercise of autonomous personhood is perverse. So on Zimmerman's account, Stoicism offers a highly unattractive model of autonomy that the Epictetus example makes plain. Stoicism is merely a form of psychological rationalisation, offering a conception of an autonomous self that's created in response to adverse external situations. And this may well be a useful psychological survival mechanism, but hardly offers us an attractive model of human autonomy. So the objection goes. So there are, I suggest, a number of reasons why we ought not to think that the Stoic retreat into an, in, into an inner citadel is merely an instance of this sort of psychological rationalisation. Let me focus on two, two, two reasons in particular. The first is that their retreat inwards is a direct consequence of their wider value theory, for which they offer us a number of arguments. And second, that it's only half the story, so to speak. And once we combine it with the other half of the story, we get a picture of what's going on. But first, let me say new theory. Marcus is more or less an orthodox Stoic insofar as he follows earlier Stoic thinking about the nature of value. Like his Stoic predecessors, he holds that the only things possessing genuine value, positive and negative, are virtue and vice. So he, he writes, this is on the handout, take your joy in simplicity, in integrity, in indifference to all that lies between virtue and vice. Indeed, one of the dominant themes running throughout the meditations is that one ought to cultivate an attitude of indifference towards externals, especially fame and posthumous reputation, but also other externals classified by the Stoics as indifference. So again, Marcus writes, Death and life, fame and ignominy, pain and pleasure, wealth and poverty, all these come to good and bad alike, but not in themselves either right or wrong. Neither, then, are they inherent good or evil. Now, the Meditations is not the sort of text in which we might expect to find a lengthy argument for this sort of claim. But elsewhere, the Stoics do offer context-independent arguments for the indifference of externals. And this is key in terms of responding to the charge of psychological rationalisation, that these are context-independent arguments. And Diogenes Laertius reports um, two such arguments of these, again on the handout, Diogenes um, writes, for just as heating, not chilling, is the peculiar characteristic of what is hot, so too benefiting, not harming, is the peculiar characteristic of what is good. But wealth and health no more do benefit than they, ha than they harm. Therefore, wealth and health are not something good. Furthermore, they, the Stoics say, that which can be used well and badly is not something good. But wealth and health can be used well and badly. Therefore, wealth and health are not something good. 
We'll come back to this argument a bit later on, but for the time being we can note that the claim is that external valuables such as wealth and health in fact are not inherently valuable because they do not consistently lead to benefit. The second argument in um, Diogenes states um, indifferent is used in two senses unconditionally of things which contribute neither to happiness nor unhappiness as is the case with wealth, reputation, health, strength and the like for it is possible to be happy even without these though the manner of using them is constitutive of happiness or unhappiness. So this argument states that those same externals often thought to be inherently valuable are not because they're neither a necessary nor a sufficient condition for our well-being. Now to these two arguments we can add a third argument that we find in Marcus Aurelius himself. In Meditations 2.11 Marcus argues that if we accept the existence of providence then there is no way that externals such as wealth and poverty can have any inherent value for these things are distributed randomly to the deserving and undeserving alike. The fact that they are so distributed shows they cannot possess any real value. So again let me quickly read the passage from Marcus. The nature of the whole would not have been blind to this either through ignorance or with knowledge unaccompanied by the power to prevent and put right nor would it have made so great an error through lack of power or skill as to have good and bad falling indiscriminately on good and bad people alike. Yes, death and life, fame and ignominy, plain and pleasure, wealth and poverty, all these come to good and bad alike, but they are not in themselves either right or wrong, neither then are they inherent good or evil. So that last bit, the end of the passage we, we looked at earlier. So here Marcus gives us an additional argument for the indifference of externals, an argument from providence, we might call it. So we've now got a total of three distinct, context-independent arguments for the claim that externals ought to be a matter of indifference to us. First, they can be used as much for bad ends as they can for good ends. Second, that they're not sufficient or even necessary conditions for happiness. And third, if one holds that the cosmos is providentially ordered, then the way in which they're distributed suggests they cannot possess any inherent value. The important point for present purposes is that these are all contependent arguments for the claim we ought not to attribute value to external objects and states of affairs. Now, recent scholarship on Stoic ethics has highlighted the fact that the first of these three arguments is preempted by a discussion that Socrates has in Plato's Euthydemus. And it's well known that the Stoics admired the historical Socrates and indeed wanted to be thought of as Socratics. And the historical Socrates is an interesting figure to think about within the context of the rationalisation debate. For his refusal to avoid the hemlock suggests he was not by nature inclined to amend his beliefs in the face of unpleasant circumstances. So what does Socrates have to say on this topic? When the Euthydemus, um, in a discussion trying to determine what one needs if one is to do well in life, Socrates lists a series of candidate goods, including wealth, health, reputation, the traditional virtues such as courage and temperance, as well as wisdom. And he goes on to suggest that these goods will only contribute to a happy life if they benefit us in some way. And the only way they benefit us is if we make use of them. 
and here Socrates is principally concerned with external goods, such as wealth and health. And he asks his interlocutor, Suppose a man had got wealth and all the goods that we mentioned just now, but made no use of them. Would he be happy because of possessing these goods? And the answer that comes back is, of course, no. And Socrates goes on to argue that not only must one make use of such external goods in order to benefit from them, but one must also know how to use them rightly or correctly. While using them correctly will bring benefit, using them incorrectly may well bring harm. So what we need, of course, is knowledge. Knowledge of how to use such goods rightly. For if we don't have the knowledge, we may well inadvertently use them incorrectly and end up making things worse for ourselves. So Socrates concludes that the initial claim that external things such as wealth and health ought to be classified among the goods was mistaken, for such things will generate harm if they're not guided by knowledge, which Socrates characteristically identifies with, with wisdom. And thus he says, of all other things, not one is either good or bad, but of these two, wisdom is good and ignorance bad. So this discussion in the Euthydemus is where Socrates, or Plato Socrates, lays the foundations for the Stoic theory of indifference, built upon by Zeno and his successors. The opening Stoic position seems to have been that only virtual wisdom is good and their opposites bad, with everything else falling into the category of indifference following Socrates. But in time, Zeno modifies the position to distinguish between indifference, some of which might be preferred and others non-preferred, with others genuinely indifferent, all depending on the extent to which they accord with nature. Thus, all things being equal, one will prefer health over sickness, although one is likely to remain genuinely indifferent about whether the number of hairs on one's head is odd or even. The introduction of these subcategories within indifference led to internal school debate with other Stoics such as Aristo rejecting the innovation. But one thing, all Stoics reject the claim that externals have any inherent value. Now the positive counterpart to this is the claim that virtual wisdom, understood as an excellent rational mental state, is the only thing with any inherent positive value. And here again the Stoics are simply following Socrates. As we've seen Socrates argue already, Wisdom is the only thing that's genuinely good, and all other apparent goods are only so to the extent that they are guided by wisdom. Add, as we've seen, that wisdom or virtue is the only thing possessing any inherent positive value because it's the only necessary and sufficient condition for a good life. It is perfectly possible to be rich and thoroughly miserable, just as it is possible to be broke and quite content. So it seems clear then that a Stoic like Marcus doesn't turn his back on externals simply as an act of psychological rationalisation in the face of unpleasant circumstances. Instead, he has a series of independent philosophical arguments that lead him to do so. Arguments built upon an analysis of the necessary and sufficient conditions for happiness, and also upon a commitment to a belief in the divine and rational ordering of the cosmos. Okay, so that's kind of one response to the, the, the psychological rationalisation charge. The second response to that charge would be to place Marcus's image of an inner citadel within the wider context of it. And so earlier on, I suggested that in the Medicine 
we see two recurrent themes. We see, on the one hand, the isolation of the self into its citadel, and on the other, the identification of the self with cosmic nature. And I suggested that these two themes appear to pull Marcus in opposing directions. So, while at the same time telling us that all that lies outside my own mind is nothing to it, and withdraw into yourself, Marcus also tells us, these are all on the handout, um, page three, um, he also tells us, all things are meshed together, and a sacred bond unites them. Hardly a single thing is alien to the rest. Ordered together in their places, they together make up one, the one order of the universe. There is one universe out of all things, one God pervading all things, one substance, one law, one common reason in all intelligent beings, and one truth. If indeed there is also one perfection of all cognate beings sharing in the same reason. Now, as we've already seen, Marcus's turn inwards cannot be an act of rationalisation, hiding away from a cruel and unwelcoming world, for he holds that the cosmos is providentially ordered and ruled by reason. Instead, it's a product of an independent set of arguments about necessary and sufficient conditions for happiness. What the turn inwards actually involves is an increased concern with our own virtue, conceived as the ruling part of our soul, the hegemonicon, in an excellent rational state. As it is for Socrates, the task is to take care of ourselves. But because Marcus holds the cosmos as a whole is rational, this inner concern with becoming more rational ourselves actually brings us into closer harmony with nature. And for the Stoics, of course, our individual souls, made of panuma, are literally fragments of the cosmic god conceived as the panuma pervading all of nature. So the more we pay attention to and develop the rationality within the ruling part of our individual souls, the more we literally become part of the Stoic God, and more prosaically, the better understanding we shall have of the providential order of events and how we fit into that order. Thus, not only is the turn inwards not motivated by a psychological rationalisation designed to shield us from the outside world, but even if it were, it would end up undermining itself. For the process of turning our backs on the world and focusing on the development of our own rationality would undermine its own foundations. Berlin's image of the Stoic withdrawing into the inner citadel seems to ignore two key elements of the Stoic picture. First, the wider providential account of nature, and second, what it is that the soul is expected to do when it turns inwards, namely, focus its attention on the only thing that has true value namely virtue, conceived as the rational perfection of the ruling part of one's soul. So Berlin's assumption that the turn inwards is solely to hide from the outside world means he perhaps misses the real motivation at work here. Okay, so this leads me on to a number of reflections about Marcus's philosophical project in the Meditations. I said earlier that Marcus seems to be pulled in these two opposing directions, and I've tried to show, albeit very briefly, how these two themes might be reconciled. In short, 
which into one's inner citadel isn't as isolationist as it sounds. For what one finds inside immediately connects one back with the outside world. Moreover, the motivation to turn inwards is not to hide from hostile fortune, but rather to focus attention on what is most valuable. So if that's correct, why the imagery of an inner citadel in the first place, which generates this potentially misleading impression? A Stoic's virtue is indeed invincible and unassailable, but, as we've seen, it's also in harmony with the, rational, with the rationality of cosmic nature. And as I've wondered about this, I've noticed what looks to me like a potential Epicurean influence here. Now, we're all fami familiar with the image of the Epicurean turning his back on the outside world, walled up in his garden with his friends, following his master's maxim live unnoticed. Withdrawal looks like it was an Epicurean theme. And it's striking that when both Seneca and Marcus Aurelius talk about turning inwards, they also refer to Epicurus. So, for example, Seneca cites Epicurus on this theme, and this is, um, I think, on the handout. Um, I shall gradually allow you to do what Epicurus in another passage suggests. The time when you should most of all withdraw into yourself is when you are forced to be in a crowd. So here Seneca cites Epicurus saying, withdraw into yourself. And I don't think Seneca uses this phrase anywhere else. It's only when he's citing Epicurus. And also, this seems to be the first place where a Stoic author, so far as I'm aware, so far as I've noticed, it's the first place where a Stoic author introduces this theme. And it looks as if it might be introduced into the Stoic literature from Epicurus. And if we turn back to Marcus, we find the following passage that seems to capture precisely what Isaiah Berlin objects to so strongly. So um, Marcus writes, On pain, unbearable pain carries us off. Chronic pain can be borne. The mind preserves its own serenity by withdrawal, and the directing reason is not impaired by pain. It is for the parts injured by the pain to protest if they can. So here we have an explicit reference to withdrawal in the face of external pain. But the first part of this passage gestures towards the Epicurean attitude towards physical pain. A gesture towards Epicurus' key doctrine 4, that extreme we needn't worry about extreme pain because it'll probably kill us, and mild pain we'll be able to cope with. And in fact, not long in the meditations, Marcus refers to the Epicurean attitude explicitly. Um, so Marcus writes, In most cases of pain you should be helped to by the saying of Epicurus. Pain is neither unendurable nor unending as long as you remember its limits and do not exaggerate it in your imagination. Now for an Epicurean, of course, pain is a real evil. Psychological pain might prove to be more damaging than physical pain, suggests Epicurus, but nevertheless physical pain is a real harm that any self-respecting hedonist will try to avoid. Thus, withdrawing into oneself makes good sense for an Epicurean. Anything to minimise the impact of this genuinely bad thing. But for a Stoic, it seems to go against some of the central tenets of his philosophical worldview. The Stoic will certainly turn inwards in order to pay proper attention to the only thing that has real value, his virtue, 
but he won't turn inwards in order to escape external harms because he doesn't think there are any. While late Stoics such as Marcus might sometimes use the language of withdrawal, I'm inclined to suggest this reflects some kind of Epicurean influence. And it's worth noting that although admirers such as Pierre Adot and critics such as Isaiah Berlin have used the image of the inner citadel to capture the essence of Marcus's philosophy, in fact, he only uses the phrase once. He doesn't use the phrase in the citadel, but the word Acropolis he uses just once. And it's also striking that one of the few examples that I know of of this kind of imagery um, elsewhere comes from an Epicurean text, namely the opening lines of Book 2 of Lucretius, De Rerum Natura, where he refers to occupying a calm, well-fortified position from which to observe the lives of others. Lucretius's temple seems to be above the world, not a retreat within it, and Lucretius is not one of the obvious sources that Marcus draws on. Even so, it's been suggested that Seneca's occasional references to withdrawal may have been influenced by Epictetus. Sorry, Seneca's occasional references to withdrawal may have been influenced by Lucretius, whom we know he read closely. Lucretius is the most cited poet in Seneca. And so by this route again, the imagery may have entered into the later Stoic tradition. So in order to stress the difference in kind between that sort of Epicurean withdrawal and the Stoic turn inwards, I want to say something very briefly about the influence of Socrates on the meditations. Um, in one passage cited above, we can see Marcus proposing withdrawal in the face of physical pain, and I've suggested this displays the influence of Epicurus and is out of character with the thrust of Marcus's Stoic project. Now, in order to support this claim, I want to consider a couple of other passages where Marcus emphasises what I think is the true nature of his project, and I shall suggest that these passages capture the Socratic nature of his Stoic project. So I want to suggest that Marcus is not an Epicurean withdrawing from, pain, from a painful world, but rather a Socratic taking care of his virtue. So again, these are the, the last two passages on the, the handout. Let me quickly read both of these out. Um, so Marcus writes, Failure to read what is happening in another soul is not easily seen as a cause of unhappiness, but those who fail to attend to the motions of their own souls are necessarily unhappy. Nothing is more miserable than one who is always out and about, running round everything in circles, in Pindar's words, delving deep into the bowels of the earth, and looking for signs and symptoms to divine his neighbours' minds. He does not realise that it is sufficient to concentrate solely on the divinity within himself, and to give it true service. That service is to keep it uncontaminated by passion, triviality, or discontent at what is dealt by gods or men. So, Building upon what we've already seen with the Stoic theory of value, for Marcus, only the motions of our own souls, or the divinity within ourselves, deserve our full attention. For the motions of our own soul, conceived as a fragment of the cosmic soul, form the necessary and sufficient condition for our happiness. And as with Socrates in the Euthydemus, it's knowledge identified with wisdom that counts. And in the Stoic context, this means perfecting one's reason to the point that it comes into harmony with cosmic reason. 
This seems to be the project that Marcus is engaged in and has little to do with hiding away from perceived evils. And so I'd suggest that the motivations behind a Stoic turn inwards and Epicurean withdrawal are quite different. Okay, so let me very briefly sum up. Um, So by way of conclusion then, I would argue that the charge of rationalisation against Marcus and other late Stoics doesn't stand up. There may be other reasons why his philosophical position might appear unattractive to modern philosophers today, such as its reliance on claims about the inherent rationality of the cosmos, and one could easily imagine an Aristotelian response to its Socratic, cynic-inspired claims about the autonomy of you. And these are all good philosophical objections. And raising those sorts of objections place the late Stoics as players within the wider context of philosophical debates about nature and value, and that, I suggest, is where they belong. But to charge the late Stoics and Marcus with psychological rationalisation effectively denies that they have any kind of principled philosophical position at all, and I think that goes a bit too far. Thank you. Thank you.